Hey guys, it's Eric here, and in this video we're joined by Christopher Wells. Christopher Wells is an American-Canadian student currently studying classics at the University of British Columbia. He was born and raised in the Washington DC area, and politics has always been in close proximity to his life. He's a free speech advocate and hopes to go on to law school to continue his work defending free speech. In this video, Christopher and I have a thought-provoking and interesting conversation about what is at the heart of cancel culture, what cancel culture actually looks like, how cancel culture might not serve the communities that it intends to, the importance of rational and meaningful dialogue when discussing critical social issues, and lots more. I really enjoyed having this conversation with Christopher and his unique American perspective definitely broadened the way that I see cancel culture. And I hope you enjoy watching the video. Uh, without further ado, here it is. Hey guys, it's Eric Kosa here and I am back with another video. Uh, and I'm so glad to say that in this video, I'm joined by Christopher Wells. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> no problem at all, Christopher. Uh, Christopher is someone I met on Clubhouse. Um, I've engaged in a lot of conversation with Christopher and a lot of other people about issues like cancel culture, like modern day activism, like wokeism. Uh, and I've, I've definitely found Christopher to be one of the more, more refreshing voices on the app. Uh, and it's definitely been great to see a lot of the takes Christopher has uh, adopted when it comes to a lot of the big issues that are related to things like cancel culture. So it's so great to have him in this video. But before we get into uh, the video, I think Christopher, you met a huge leap recently by being a part of a fantastic organization known as FAIR. I think it's the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, uh, which, you know, the board of, of the, the board of the, the panel, sorry, it includes a lot of seminal intellectuals, the likes of Coleman Hughes, uh, Camille Foster, uh, activists like Daryl Davis, and you're involved with the organization. So before we actually get into cancel culture, do you want to talk a bit about FAIR and how you got involved with them? Yeah, uh, gladly. So it is the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. Um, I'm the social media manager and I'm doing the weekly newsletter. I may be doing more behind the scenes going forward. And I, I actually got involved with them through Clubhouse. It's a, <laughs> it's a great networking app. Um, I had a friend, Charlotte Brokeem, who does Let's Talk Sex with Barry Weiss on Clubhouse. And uh, the current social media manager was leaving. She reached out to me and uh, one thing led to another. Uh, FAIR is a great organization. The, as you said, the, the board of advisors is just stacked with pro-human intellectual voices, center right and center left, which is what we really need. Um, it's, it's interesting to see because it actually still is a small organization with a huge, huge power behind it with, with the board of advisors. So we've, we've garnered more attention, uh, perhaps uh, faster than we expected. So we're, we're really still getting things kicking. Um, but the, the goal is to be a counterweight against intolerance from any side of the aisle. We are nonpartisan. We advocate for free speech, but more than anything, a pro-human approach to combating things like cancel culture, which I think we're going to get into in this conversation. I think there's, there hasn't been a, a great coalition built uh, from liberals and conservatives alike who are concerned about the illiberal forces in our society. And this is, this is one way of picking up where the ACLU left off 
in terms of advocating for civil liberties in a, in a nonpartisan sense. Thank you so much for the rundown there, Christopher. And I'm actually going to have a link to FAIR's website. So if anyone here in Ireland wants to learn more about the organization, you can by at, you know, tapping the link in my description. So I, I want to get into cancel culture because you, know, you said there you're a free, free speech advocate. Uh, you operate on, on college campuses. Um, and in America, it seems from an outsider's perspective, like cancel, cancel culture is a problem that a lot of young people are reckoning with. It's an issue that has greatly been politicized. And a lot of people are having political and apolitical conversations about it. But I want to ask you, Christopher, how would you define cancel culture? Because it seems like when I engage in discussions with a lot of people about it, you know, they, they, they tend to point out the fact that cancellation has existed for millennia. You know, we've seen a form of cancel, cancellation manifest uh, in, in the Inquisition here in Ireland, uh, for a while, the church was very much married to the state. So anyone who took a position that was anti-Catholic church was cancelled in a sense. So what makes this form of cancellation different and worthy of the amount of attention that it's getting in public discourse at the moment? Yeah, certainly. I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because it's generally one I've been unprepared for and I've had to dwell a lot on because in my realm, I'm dealing with looking at the latest cancellations, uh, generally the most atrocious on a, on a day-to-day basis. So to me, it's like, how do you not know what it is? Um, and sometimes it's a bad faith question, but uh, yes. And that's another thing I, I hear quite a bit is that it's a millennia long problem or to some people, not a problem. Uh, What's different now is the speed and vigor with which it happens. I think when you reference uh, the church, there used to be at least some amount of a governing or religious body uh, that would lead cancellations. Now it can really be anyone with the power of social media. So, uh, so I think what's different is the speed with which it can happen and the fact that it's, it happens less or more to non-public figures than people think. A lot of people will go, well, look, nothing really too awful happened to JK Rowling or whoever it be, but the, it's the cancellations you don't hear about that are the most upsetting. Uh, I was canceled myself my first year at university and I got no press. Um, so I, I, it's, it's the wildfire spread. Uh, obviously, there have been extrajudicial cancellations throughout the ages, primarily the Salem witch trials. There was no governing body. That was just townspeople. But the main thing that I hear is, well, this has happened for millennia, so why should we be concerned now? And the, the answer is, it wasn't good when it happened back then. And it's not good now either. Yep, that's a fantastic point, uh, Christopher, and you know it was very insightful. Uh, before getting to the next question, um, and I want to ask you about the, what is at the core of uh, cancel culture. Before getting to there, though, I want to firstly ask you, what does cancellation look like? Because uh, you know it seems like you know, in America, from looking at political conversations about cancel culture and universities, uh, that a lot of kind of right wingers, traditional right wingers, get on and talk about how you know the college campuses are being attacked. Uh, that professors are being cancelled. And a lot of it, from an outsider's perspective, kind of looks like hyperbole. We don't really know here, on, like here, what's going on on the ground. And it looks like, 
people who are so attached to their political dogmas are just engaging in anything that will allow them to get the upper hand over the other side in the culture war, in the cancel culture conversation. And I think it takes away from the essence of cancel culture. So is it all hyperbole or what's actually happen happening? Is cancel culture when there's a pylon on Twitter or is it when someone is fired? What does it look like to be canceled? Mm, mm, that's, a, that's a good question. And I do think it varies. I think on a university campus, it's not as much reputation destruction to be worried about as for many people it is. For me, that wasn't much of an issue because um, I've always been a provocateur to some extent. But it, it, in the workplace, I think is the scary place because I my career is not up in the air. I don't have a career. I, I don't face anything except for being marked down in, in class or having some angry students to deal with. Um, but if you're 40 and working at a corporation, it's a, you can lose your livelihood. Uh, and it happens all the time. There was a UPS truck driver. Have you, have you heard about this anecdote? Sorry. Yeah, uh, doing this to signal for someone to pass him. And apparently that's a white supremacist symbol um, and they lost their livelihood. So. On college campus, um, it's it, it's hard to, I think the idea that it's very widespread is true. However, the people who enact it are actually a minority. It's, it's more the bystanders. So I don't have an accurate representation of what my peers actually believe, but I know plenty of people who will not go out of their way to ruin your reputation. However, they do agree enough with the dogma that they'll stand by. And what I really notice is the sensitivity in any given classroom, even on Zoom is uh, everyone is afraid to say the wrong thing. Everyone is afraid to misgender someone or, or whatever it be. So it's more the fear element than the actual reputation destruction that, that happens on university campuses. There's, there's really a gaslighting element because you have to take a step back and see it for what it is before you realize. For many people, that's just the objective plane they're, that they're um, functioning on. And it's kind of the, the orthodoxy of social justice is the underlying objective grounds for, uh, for students here. So it, it, it's kind of like, if you go back to the 1900s, there were people who were not vehemently religious, but they wouldn't dare say there's not a God. It's, it's much the same. It's a, a belief structure that the professors or whoever it be are the priests and the students are just kind of going to church. Yeah, that's a fantastic way to conceptualize it. Um, and you know, I really appreciate, appreciated what you said about fear. Uh, and I think that factor is excluded a lot in conversations about cancel culture. And some of my friends here in Ireland, I, I, I joke and jest with them about the fact, you know, that you, know, you type, they tell me that they type tweets sometimes to kind of comment on social issues and they don't tweet it at the end, they kind of cancel everything out and they'd be like, no, nope, I'll be canceled for that. So I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to spare my voice to this issue. So I think that fear is an, an important factor. And a culture that promotes fear instead of, um, incentivizes participation when it comes to difficult dialogue 
I think is one that is somewhat regressive. And I think I want, it's important for us to get to the core, which is what my, my next question will be centered on. What do you think is at the core of, of, of cancer culture? I think as a phenomenon, it's contrary to growth and human evolution. It denies the fact that we can evolve into being better beings, ideologically, spiritually, if you want to look at it in a metaphysical way, intellectually as well. Um, and, you know, I, I, like when I, three years ago, Christopher, like if someone put up stuff I put out there on social media, you know, you could possibly cancel me. Um, but now I'd like to think that I'm a different person to the one I was then. But if I wasn't allowed to evolve into the phase I'm in right now, I wouldn't be a better person. Uh, and I think we need to encourage evolution in all its forms rather than, discourage it and criticize it and demonize it. Um, and you know, before I ask you what's at the core of council culture, I think it's worth mentioning Daryl Davis, who's part of FAIR, the organization you're part of. You know, I think he's dedicated his activism to converting 200 members of the KKK uh, out of the KKK, convincing them out of their ways of thinking as a black American. When it comes to racism, you can't get more extreme <laughs> on the KKK. Uh, if anyone's worthy of consolation, if cancellation is justifiable, it is them. Yet this black American took it upon himself to convert KKK members. MLK is another great example. You know, I like to coin the term MLK paradox. When he operated as an activist, he was speaking about the humanity that both he and the racists at a time of rampant racism in America shared and how it was they who, was in the who were in the wrong, but that they weren't worthy of demonization because they, like him, was a human being. And it's the, he devoted his activism to converting them. Now, figures that are nowhere near as extreme as the KKK that Donald Davis has worked with, um, the white supremacists that MLK appealed to, are being canceled. Um, so what is at the core of this phenomenon? Is it an unwillingness to engage in difficult dialogue? You know, what is it? Well. I think there's a, a couple things. And before I get into that, this is something Hitchens has spoke, spoken about. This is what I was talking about with canceling to avoid cancellation is people look at an authoritarian society uh, like Nazi Germany with very clear defined rules. And as long as you follow the rules, you may survive. But the truth is the rules should always be shifting. So you're always afraid and you never know if you're gonna step out of line. Uh, that's something that Solzhenitsyn writes about beautifully in, in the first volume of the Gulag Archipelago. Um, but going to your question, what's causing it? Well, first, in particularly in Europe, but now really in America and Canada, there's, uh, we've been running on post-Christian fumes for so long even people who go to church aren't Bible literalists unless they're in the Bible Belt. The, the, the rate at which atheism has come about in the States um, has been unfounded. So there's a need for a belief system uh, that's lacking in many youths. Uh, and this isn't an advocacy to go back to Chris, Christianity. Uh, I'm personally agnostic. I'm neither atheist or a believer myself, but it shows that lacking a belief system in a greater community around that, something's gonna fill that void. Uh, and, and secondly is particularly with young people um, who oftentimes lead cancellations is th there's a real pain uh, in being Gen Z. Um, 
And I don't mean that in the sense that and there's there's this paradox of victimhood where we want to play identity politics and be victims for being whatever color or whatever sexuality or whatever gender or whatever it be. But that's that's a cover for other pain. And the pain is lack of social connection, addiction issues, primarily pornography with young men, substance addiction, all of these things. So I think identity politics is um is really a cover for more internal pain that is the intrinsic human pain that every human is capable of feeling that we can no longer discuss. That's very interesting what you said there. And I guess the religiosity point was quite interesting as well, how we nearly have this impulse to cling on to an ideology that gives us comfort, that gives us a home, and how um, cancel culture and the surrounding wider culture that kind of um, encapsulates it, assuming that people are clinging on in a religious, clinging on to in a religious way. Uh, I guess you know, getting on to the next question, I think this is an important question um, that I think people like you are fantastic activists and others definitely need to reckon with when trying to promote the right message, the message that FAIR as an organization is trying to promote. You know, it seems that a lot of you know, bona fide good faith actors are getting caught up in the hype. Uh, people who genuinely want to bring about progressive social change in society, especially for groups that may be deemed to be marginalized, are getting caught up in cancel culture. They believe in canceling individuals. It might be what secures a better society. So in America, do you feel, this is what I perceive here in Ireland, a lot of good faith actors advocating for cancel culture because they think it's what's best. In America, do you think this is true? Are there a lot of good faith actors getting caught up in, in the hype? And what do you think can be done to detach them um, from, from the phenomenon? That's a great question. Um, uh, the thing about cancel culture, not the act of cancellation, but just this ideology, wokeism or liberalism, whatever, whatever you want to call it, is it weaponizes empathy. Um, some of the most empathetic people I know are on board with this. And the thing is, they don't dive into the theory. They're not politically engaged. Again, these are the people I'm speaking about on campus who are generally apolitical lacking a belief system, need something to believe, very empathetic. They don't know what it looks like. So they, but they're told if you don't do X, Y, Z or agree with X, Y, Z, you are a terrible person. So of course they'll go along with it. So I, I think it's a lot of it's more weaponized empathy than, uh, than cynical dogma. That said, those are the bystanders. In my experience, the people who will go out of their way to ruin your life are full of resent, full of anger, full of pain, and oftentimes have been marginalized. So I, I think, yeah, I, I really think there's a power element to it. Um, and when I look back on when I was a social justice advocate, I was a lost 16 year old who needed to feel righteous whose identity had totally shifted in the past few years and, and was just lost in the fray. But I, I think that's the majority of people. So I think the good faith actors are those on the periphery. So again, if you look at it like a church, your professors who are really pushing the dogma are, are, the, uh, are the priests. And then the students who will partake in cancellation are your missionaries. 
And then you just have the regular churchgoers who haven't necessarily read the scripture, but need a belief system and only see the periphery. Because uh, what these mainstream media outlets will do is they'll, they'll downplay it and call it things like a reckoning, but they won't directly endorse it, but they'll make it seem like there's not really an issue with cancel culture. So it, it's more the people on the periphery I'm, I'm concerned about. Yeah, that, uh, those are great, uh, very articulate points that you made there, uh, Chris, uh, Christopher. And there's lots that you kind of touch on there that I'd like to acknowledge before moving on to the next question. Um, hmm. you, you kind of spoke about how you know, a lot of the politicians uh, kind of bow to um, cancel culture, uh, maybe for fear of uh, electoral punishment, if that did not happen or if, if they didn't do that. And I think it's quite interesting that that occurs because according to a lot of the polls that I've seen conducted in the USA, when it comes to a lot of the issues that you know, this kind of phenomenon, this ideology, as you put it, would advocate for um, you know, a lot of people on the ground who this culture is supposedly catering, catering towards are against it. Um, I think in our first Clubhouse chat, I talked about a proposition that was forwarded in, in California and was voted upon um, I think it was in Congress, and it was advocating for uh, race-based um, hiring uh, procedures, being involved in how you know, people were appointed into particular educational and professional positions. It was a proposition that advocated for this. And when polled, the majority of the Black community in California repudiated it, so did the majority of the Latino community and the majority of the white community and wider California. Yet, Nike, Facebook, I don't believe it was NAC actually, Facebook, many corporations in California and a lot of the politicians left and right supported it because they thought it was what this culture would mandate and therefore was good for the minorities and the people in particular communities that it supposedly or ostensibly caters towards. So it seems like it's kind of out of touch with a lot of people on the ground. You know, the fact also that uh, I think you and I insinuated that a lot of friends that we have, well, I, I think I did earlier, would want to put out particular uh, views and points out in good faith about social progress, let's say on Twitter, but would be scared to because they know as soon as they do, a kind of mob might attack them, kind of claiming that they're doing what they shouldn't be doing uh, in terms of social progress in that context also. So it seems, it seems like the theory is somewhat out of touch with ordinary people uh, to some extent. Um, so yes, this is something, an observation that I've made recently. Getting on to the next question though, um, you know. Re real quick, if, if I may yeah, reply please. to that briefly. Um, sorry, I, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but I, I think there, there's a lot to get at there it, in that that uh, that preposition in, in California, this is where the double speak comes in. Because when people campaign for these things, they'll use terms like equity, so on and so forth. But it, it was a referendum. So fortunately, the, the people of California got to vote on it. And when it came to reading the law and saying yes or no, it was quite apparent that equity was a glossy term. And what we mean is discrimination based on race. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's just what I wanted to point out is that there, there's so much doublespeak. And in terms of advocating for people on the ground, 81% of black Americans don't want to defund the police. And, and what it comes down to is living in different realities due to, due to technology. We're at a point where objective truth is fractured across Western society, but that's a great danger at the same time. Most, most people who are concerned about this either A, don't want to speak up 
or B, don't have a network of like-minded people. Anyway, my, my apologies for interrupting <laughs> the flow. You know, one of the most scary things I think that is inherent, embedded in cancel culture, or at least its implications, is the fact that, again, it does not you kind of adopt that idea of redemption that has been advocated by for the best activists of the 20th century, like Gandhi, like MLK, like Nelson Mandela. Instead, it rejects that and kind of opts for methods of you know, pushing people away. And I think in pushing people away, this culture forgets or at least isn't aware of where these people are being pushed to. And I, I think council culture has the, the potential to further radicalize people. If one is in a cesspot of, of, of negative views and ideologies, which are just, you know, one could probably characterize them as objectively bad and regressive, you know, counseling the person, instead of holistically engaging with them to see what you can do to reproach and reform them is, is, is a method that could further radicalize them. And as I kind of touched on earlier, keep them in the fade that they're in, which isn't necessarily best for them. And I think an irony, a cruel irony in all of this is that, you know, prison reform is something that I would definitely be passionate, uh, passionate about. And in conversations about that, a lot of people would talk about reforming individuals and not just throwing them in prisons and allowing them to rot. Yet with council culture, a lot of those who may advocate for prison reform would opt for the opposite uh, method. You know, it wouldn't be for reforming people. Instead, would want to allow people to rot in their vicarious jail with the ideology that got them there in the first place. So do you think council culture has the potential to further radicalize people? And uh, Do you think the approach being taken at the moment to engage with those who might have bad views, objectively bad views, is, is good or progressive in any way. Wow. Um, yes. Firm, firm, yes. Uh, but the, the point I really want to make is many of the people, I, we're at a point where society has really pushed away anyone with objectively bad views. Um, but in terms of radicalization, certainly. Uh, I, during 2020, I, it was before I had made any network and uh, I was still kind of in the rock bottom of my social isolation. Girlfriend had just broken up with me and I was toying with the idea of voting for Trump because I was so sick. and. <laughs> if you knew me two years ago, that Chris Wells toying with the idea of voting <laughs> for Trump. Uh, but then there are people who will be pushed much further. And I don't know if personally I have rethought my politics or if the ground underneath me has shifted. I think it's a bit of both. Now I think of myself as center right. I still wince at the idea of being conservative. Um, but yeah, I mean, you look at Charlottesville with 20-year-old white young men legitimately endorsing uh, white supremacy. Why are they so angry? And this was when cancel culture was really first getting kicking. And I mean, if I, 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 I can really understand it in that because I grew up so progressive before wokeism was a thing, but the seeds had been laid. I grew up really wanting to reject being a white straight man. I, I felt that there was no identity for me um, being raised in such a progressive bubble. And I 
was the president of Young Democrats and interned at the ACLU. And I, I remember just thinking, will there be a spot for me here in a year? So if you have someone who doesn't have as benevolent of a family or a life situation or friends and support systems and goes to university and they're just rotting online, hearing about how evil white straight men are, something that both Jordan Peterson and Brett Weinstein have, have warned about is the boogeyman alt-right that people are worried about now, they will awaken the real alt-right if things go much further. And that's not a threat, it's an observation. And I don't, I don't see it becoming enough of a threat where there's a legitimate white supremacist threat in the United States because so many people have been pushed that way. But I do see people, the danger becomes playing identity politics back. Because right now we know how ugly left-wing identity politics are. We haven't seen right-wing identity politics since World War II, really. And that is a truly ugly game to play. Wow. Um, that's definitely one way to put it. Um, I, I think the, ne the next question that I'm going to ask is quite important. But just to stay on this one, to ponder on this one for a second, and maybe the challenge, because uh, I think Jordan Peterson is, is notorious um, for talking about how, you know, uh, right-wing identity politics, or at least the quasi-right-wing uh, identity politics, which is what we saw manifest in Charlottesville, uh, was a reaction to the vicious, more malignant, left-wing identity politics. But a lot of people that I spoke to who are on the left say that left-wing identity politics actually is a reaction to right-wing identity politics. So what would you say to this, that, um, you know, maybe uh, underlying racism or phobias that are within society is what breeded and kind of fostered or created a breeding ground for this left-wing identity politics, which is so condemned by the likes of Jordan Peterson to conceive itself in the first place. Mm, certainly. I mean, that's why I say the, the many of the qualms they have are at their core are perfectly legitimate. It's the prescriptions, but we've gotten to a point where now the qualms themselves are absolutely ridiculous. Like Vox publishing an article saying, chess is systemically racist because white moves first that's that's not a legitimate qualm with society <laughs> um but it it depends because racism in the united states in particular was never a left right thing for its endurance up until lbj uh it, it was just a Thing. It wasn't caused by right-wing identity politics. It was caused by the racism of, of human nature. I don't know, in terms of Charlottesville, if it were to happen now, I think you could certainly say it's a reaction to left-wing identity politics. But perhaps at that point, those people had been festering for, for a, a while. Because white supremacy is legitimate white supremacy, KKK white supremacy has never been fully stamped out in the United States, but I think we're about as close to it as we can ever wish to legitimately stamping it out. Um, the, the back and forth is, I think it's greater than a left-right binary and it comes down to, to human nature. Um, okay, I'm going to move on to the next question, which I think is a very um, significant one in the conversation about council culture, because a lot of um, reasonable, rational people I speak to about cancel culture who want to justify it, um, understandably talk about the need for holding people to account for their wrongs. 
Um, they talk about how you know no one should be able to get away with doing something that is so egregious or saying something that is so hurtful. Um, objectively speaking, because something that is hurtful, of course, can be interpreted in a subjective way. But let's just assume that what they said was just incredibly wrong. Let's say a Holocaust denier, for example. You know, all of my, my friends I speak to who justify these means of cancellation would say they have to be held to account for it. And a lot of people might be using the cancel culture complaint to prevent people from holding others to account. So it seems to be a blurred, this, there seems to be a blurred slash fine line between holding people to account and cancellation depending on who you are so what do you think distinguishes both um wow well i've tried to dwell on this uh the, the question really comes down to who are you accountable to um i don't like that that word is used uh to my knowledge, it was actually used quite a bit during the Cultural Revolution in Mao's China. Um, the question, if you're a private citizen, uh, recently there was a private citizen who uh, is an EMT who donated something like $10 to Kyle Rittenhouse uh, in, in his legal defense fund. Who, and the, the media has come for him. Who is he accountable to? He, he's an EMT he's a, who serves the, the county or the, the community. Who is he accountable to? When it, when it comes to Eric Weinstein, or not, uh, Harvey Weinstein, very different people. Uh, when it comes to Harvey Weinstein, even if cancel culture weren't happening at, at the time, everyone would have held him accountable. Uh, but I, I think you're asking in terms of action and the, the fine line really comes down to private citizen and public figure. I, I don't think private citizens, unless they commit a, an abhorrent crime, are accountable to anyone but their peers and family. Why on earth are they accountable to the general public? Uh, I've been told many times by my peers here at UBC that I need to be held accountable. And these aren't my close peers. These are just people who know me for who I am. Why am I accountable to you? Am I disrupting the, the purity of the campus? It's, so, so the question I think is less where the line is and wh why is anyone accountable to any other one individual unless they've committed a violent crime or legitimately incited hatred? Okay, I'm gonna rephrase the question just to have you comment on it. Um, okay, so there are social implications with what is done and what is said. Uh, and being a free speech advocate, I'm sure many have spoke to you about those who literally espouse hateful views. Um, so cancel culture, on the one hand, is something that we're both kind of, kind of challenging and criticizing in this video, the idea of it. But what about social implications to what one says? Back to the idea of one being a Holocaust denier. If somebody did deny the Holocaust and people came at that person aggressively for doing so because of the emotions that that person might have aroused in the public. Uh, you know, how do you distinguish that, the social implications of what someone does uh, and cancel culture itself? Mm. Well, it's hard to say. Um, I think even prior to social media, if you were a neo-Nazi and, and proud of it, there, there would have been social implications. Um, 
And I think that's that's the question society has been grappling with for as long as it's been around is where where are the new moral lines? Uh, just decades ago, you you would have faced severe social consequences for being homosexual. And now if you speak against homosexuality, you, you uh, face severe consequences. So I, I, again, I think it goes back to the qualms being legitimate and the, the prescription being wrong. I'm sorry, I don't have a more concise answer for this question. It's because I, I think it's the question that we're all grappling with. I think even then, when it comes to cancellation and online mobs, and we speak about radicalization, mm. there's no good faith. There's no good faith presumed. Um, you can make cases like Stalin was worse than Hitler in a terribly articulated manner and face social ramifications for that. Um, or that Mao was worse than Hitler. If you play by the numbers, they both were. Um, and so where, what, what I'm saying is it's, it's really a loss of good faith. Uh, and the reason that's so dangerous is then people are, are afraid to inquire into questions that should be asked, like was Stalin worse than Hitler um, or whatever it be? Where, how, where does systemic racism exist? Um, I really, yeah, I'm getting so vague here with well, you no, now. I'm a little talked out. No, your answers are fantastic. And I do apologize for putting such um, an enormous question to you in magnitude. That question is pretty big. And I'm sure some people who have seriously thought about it and do so for a living, you know, the intellectuals grapple with that question uh, <laughs> rigorously, frequently. So I shouldn't have necessarily posed it to you in that manner. And it's fair to say that you did a fantastic job <laughs> in answering it. So thanks so much for proffering that answer. Uh, and that's a great way to see it. Um, okay, I'm going to end this video on a perspective note uh, and look to the future. Um, okay, in asking you this, right? So we, we've acknowledged that you know, public discourse is important, talking about the big issues, the challenging issues in a way that encourages dialogue rather than disincentivizes it is good. We both kind of condemn cancel culture as well. Fair enough. But how do we, in, in Christopher's world, let's say you are the grand emperor of the entire world uh, and you have the, you, you, you're omnipotent, you can persuade us into anything at all. If you are to persuade us into a model of public discourse, um, which did not embrace cancel culture, but completely repudiated all the phobias and, and types of discrimination that exist, what would be the tenets of such a model of public discourse? What would Christopher promulgate amongst those, his subordinates? <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, you're making me one of Plato's philosopher kings here. Um, <laughs> that's a... The, the tenets would be the tenets we had prior to the, the digital age. I think that's, you know, our, our mitigating factor. Uh, I'm a free speech absolutist. I, I really don't care if, if people are offended uh, in, in terms of persuasion, uh, right? There's, all, there's also, in, in terms of public discourse, there's going to be a difference in addressing a crowd, which oftentimes is more inflammatory than addressing an individual. Um, 
it's the classical liberal humanist view that there's intrinsic feelings in nature between humans. And obviously you want to err on, on the side of respect and common shared humanity, but you do not want to let sympathy overwhelm intellectual discourse. Um, that said, the, the other tenets would be greatly against hyperbole and incitement, which is, you know, where free speech often runs awry. Um, I, I think the big solution, let's say, that we're dealing with this little experiment in the technological age of, of online discourse would be for social media uh, companies to open their algorithms to scrutiny. We, we know that they put us into echo chambers purposely. And you just have to think about um, what, what would happen if we were made to see the opposing sides uh, posts and uh, on a free on a similar basis. Uh, I actually have a rule with myself that I don't unfollow anyone on Twitter that I disagree with to avoid putting myself into such an echo chamber. Um, again, not not a very concise answer, uh, but the, I think the core tenets go back to John Stuart Mill on liberty and the First Amendment that we already have in the United States. That's that's why I'm fighting so hard to defend it is the core tenants have been there for hundreds of years at this point in time. And it, it's the First Amendment for a reason. And uh, when it comes to all other issues, I, I hate to be a one issue voter, but I, I don't care about healthcare or any of, of these other things if it's a society without free speech, which is perhaps a very narrow-minded and obnoxious thing to say, but this is my hill to die on. Fantastic. Uh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's fair to say you'd be a pretty effective emperor, to say the least. <laughs> uh, but no, thanks so much, Christopher, and thanks so much for joining me in this video. It's definitely very insightful. I certainly learned a lot from, from speaking with you and it's always fantastic to see people, young people in particular, passionate about a cause that they believe will advance society. So thanks so much for hopping on this uh, video and, and for partaking. Thanks so much. Eric, thank you for having me. Uh, as, as Greg has noted a multitude of, of times on Clubhouse now, can listen to your accent all day. So <laughs> it was, it was a pleasure to sit down and, and chat with you and, uh, Honestly, uh, I, I wish I was a little less scatterbrained this morning. It's been a crazy week, but uh, I I wish I could have answered a few of those questions more con concisely. But they're good they're good questions, right? Because you and I are essentially on the same side of this cancel culture uh, controversy, and you're you're asking me the difficult questions, which is always good to foster some intellectual growth. There, there you go. Thanks so much, Christopher, and hopefully we have you back on in the future. Thank you very much for listening to the first episode of the Engaging with Eric podcast featuring free speech adv advocate and activist Christopher Wells. I definitely think the conversation I had with Christopher was very insightful and I learned a lot when it, when it comes to the subject of council culture that uh, me being a, a person here in Ireland might miss because of Christopher's very unique American perspective. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Make sure to stay tuned for episode two of the Engaging with Eric podcast, which will be released very soon. Thanks so much for listening once more and bye.